welcome to the Clued In Mystery Podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Brooke. And we both love mystery. Hi, Brooke. It feels like every time we have a guest, we start off by saying how excited we are. And this episode is no different. I'm very excited about today's episode. I am too. I am so excited to finally meet in person Manon Wogan. She is somebody that I really enjoy um, getting to know on Instagram, and I love all that she does there for mystery lovers. So this is going to be a really fun day. Okay, so let's get started. Manon Wogan is a mystery reader and lover who is lucky enough to work with books daily. Also known as Mystery Manon on Instagram, Manon is the editor of The Clues Letter, a weekly email newsletter for fellow mystery lovers. Each issue of The Clues Letter includes news and new releases and a featured podcast. It includes ebook deals and an author interview. When Manon isn't reading books, she's working with them. As the publishing operations manager at Author Imprints, she helps self-published authors create and promote their books. Manon has a BA in art history from Chapman University, which she credits for her obsessions with beautiful books and the Chicago Manual of Style. Welcome, Manon. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Sarah. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're so excited. I'm so excited that you agreed to join us to talk about the Detection Club. It's such a fascinating piece of history in the mystery world. I'm really excited to talk about this. I think there's a lot here and a lot that was a big deal then and is still a big deal now. Absolutely. So let's start with a little introduction to the club. It was formed in 1930, originally as a means for influential detective novelists to socialize. The original members of the Detection Club included Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Ronald Knox, and G.K. Chesterton who was also the club's first president, a position he held until 1936. Since Chesterton, there have been eight presidents, including Dorothy L. Sayers, Agatha Christie, Simon Brett, and most recently, Martin Edwards. Edwards describes it as the oldest social network of crime writers. They currently hold three dinners annually, and those are held in London, so most of the members are British, although they have invited... Um, members from uh, from elsewhere to join. Ronald Knox is credited with the rules that are associated with the club. And reading through the rules, they reflect some of the conventions that mystery authors tend to follow. But Martin Edwards describes them as being satirical and often misrepresented. The founders developed an elaborate initiation ceremony, which continues to be practiced today, as well as an oath, which has been modified over time. The oath started out as, do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them, using those wits which it may please you to bestow upon them, and not placing reliance on, nor making use of, divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence, or act of God. Members were also required to honor the king's English, and, should they fail to honor the oath, uh, would be cursed. Uh, with, may other writers anticipate your plots, may total strangers sue you for libel, may your pages swarm with misprints, and your sales continually diminish. I can't think of a worse fate for an author. <laughs> Originally, the club only invited authors of detective mysteries. They excluded thriller authors and uh, other authors uh, of other um, works in the mystery genre uh, until after the Second World War. 
and the current membership is made up of uh, authors of, you know, spy novels, thrillers, detective mysteries. The common thread is that they love writing and what they write fits under the crime fiction umbrella. Members are elected by secret ballot and current members include Ian Rankin, Sophie Hanna, Alexander McCall Smith, and Ellie Griffiths. One thing that I thought was really interesting is that Agatha Christie, uh, in her books, uh, said that her character Ariadne Oliver is a member of the Detection Club. So let's talk a little bit about the rules that Knox created. I'll read through them, and then I think it would be really interesting to hear your perspective on the Manon. So the first rule was the criminal must be mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to know. The second was uh, all supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. The third, not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. Fourth, no hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. Five, no Chinaman must be a figure in the story. And uh, just a note on that rule, I think it was intended not so much uh, to exclude a particular culture, but to avoid cultural cliches. Number six, no accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. Number seven, the detective himself must not commit the crime. Number eight, the detective is bound to declare any clues which he may discover. Number nine, the sidekick of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal from the reader any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly, but very slightly, below that of the average reader. (laughs) And twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. As a reader, Manon, which of these rules do you feel all authors should follow? Well, first, you know, I think, um, I think in the Dorothy L. Sayers episode, I just listened to it. And I think, Brooke, you called these fair play rules. And that's kind of exactly what they are. You don't want to take a cheap, mm-hmm. cheap shot with your reader. You know, you don't, you want the reader to have an ample shot at, you know, determining the solution to the mystery or the murderer. I think the probably the ones that matter to me the most are the criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story. I think it's really important to introduce possible suspects very early on. And I also like, I really like the stupid friend of the detective, the number rule number nine about the Watson, because I think that's such a great tool. And you see that all the time in <laughs> mysteries where there's a sidekick, somebody who is there to support the detective. And while you may not understand or be privy to the thoughts of the detective themselves, you almost always have some insight into the, into the stupider sidekick. Um, and the fact that the, the sidekick's intelligence must be mm-hmm. slightly below that of the average reader, just so that, again, these rules are all about giving the average reader a good shot at determining the detective or the, excuse me, the solution. And by having a sidekick that's kind of one step behind you as the reader, that pushes you forward. And I think that's really effective. I agree with that um, about the the sidekick 
because I think I've shared before that, especially as a younger reader, I always felt relieved when that person came on stage because I thought, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. this is how I feel right now. Um, Because the sleuth seems like such a superhero, especially in the classic mysteries, right? And they've got it all figured out. And it was always a relief when the sidekick would admit that they had no idea what was going on. And you're right. It does. It keeps you involved. It keeps pulling you along in the story where otherwise you might get frustrated and um, think, well, you know, this isn't for me, that character, we can see ourselves in them. I like the rule about the supernatural or preternatural agencies. I think it's really interesting to talk or to, to think about them outright banning the supernatural when you know, that's such a big part of mysteries today. There's a whole paranormal cozy mystery genre dedicated to Mm -hmm. having, you know, supernatural elements in addition to a mystery, which is really interesting. And I was just, you know, thinking about your previous episodes on Arthur Conan Doyle talking about how he had his own, you know, beliefs in the supernatural or, you know, wanting to investigate ghosts and things like that. And the fact that his character of Sherlock Holmes was so based in true detective work and science, and yet he had that other side to him. And here we are having a rule that, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be followed, but very directly says it's not a good idea to use ghosts or supernatural agencies to uh, solve a mystery. And that's kind of a cheap thing to do. Very interesting if you compare that to today's book market and what people are interested in. True. Absolutely. And the rules have been mm-hmm. bent and broken by authors since. Mm-hmm. Really, the rules should be um, seen as guiding principles for authors. For me, I think the one about the detective being bound to declare any clues he discovers is really important when we're talking about fair play. Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. a reader and the detective reveals his solution and you haven't seen anything that he describes, that's not really fair. And you haven't had the chance to get to the same place as the detective. Yeah, it's not satisfying. Exactly, yeah. I think a lot of these rules were are really good at preventing lazy writing so that you don't have a writer mm-hmm. just taking... I think I said this, but cheap shots are just taking the easy way out. Like I love the one about no, not more than one secret room or passage is allowable because in my mind, that kind of implies that, that somebody had written just a book riddled with secret rooms and passages uh-huh. <laughs> and they had to say, you know what, we're going to cap it. We're going to, you, you can't do more than one because otherwise, you know, it's a little <laughs> bit lazy of you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's really a great rule. And, um, it's one of the more blunt ones and simple ones in the in the list. That brings up a good point too, Manon, because I think that the these people were friends, right? They sat around and they had dinner together mm-hmm. and they knew each other's writing inside and out. And some of this is done in a playful fashion, mm-hmm. right? They are poking fun at kind of each other and some of the things that um, maybe they have seen the others do. And it's tongue in cheek. I don't think that they ever expected anyone to follow the letter of the law, but um, it, it does make for a more satisfying read. Like we've already said, if you at least play by most of them. Mm-hmm. 
it would be interesting to know the history behind some of these rules. Mm-hmm. I imagine you're right, man, and there must have been something behind each of them. Actually, I think that's the rule of the origin. Sorry. I think that's the origin of the rule about no cultural cliches. Um, I think Knox was really frustrated by stereotypes appearing in several books and was really discouraging uh, that it's continued happening in um, by other writers. It would be really interesting to see an analysis of each of the rules and their origins. Yeah, and I I think about the that rule. I saw one person, I think, on their blog describe it as no suspicious foreigners. And I think that's a good way of, of thinking about that because there's like this fear in a lot of detective novels of, you know, the unknown. And I think a lot of early authors put those people in that category i remember reading a short story by one of the members of the club r austin freeman i don't think i finished it because he stereotyped italians to the point where it was very obvious that the italian was Mm -hmm. the murderer and that felt and it's funny because he's a member of the club and here's this rule about no suspicious foreigners and he wrote this italian that was so you know naturally aggressive and things like that I just didn't finish the story and then I was reading Murder on the Orient Express and I think um, Agatha Christie was poking fun at this stereotype quite a bit because one of the characters really suspects the Italian on the train the Italian man of stabbing the the body or the care of or the you know the victim and he kept thinking he keeps saying these Italians are untrustworthy, they're very aggressive, they're prone to stabbing, like the knife is the Sicilian's tool or something, he says it mm-hmm. like that. And it felt like Agatha Christie was really poking fun at those kind of stereotypes about uh people who are just you know, are just naturally suspicious because of where they're from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was a very conscious thing on her part to, you know, to make fun of that stereotyping. Yeah, those those passages kind of had me laughing out loud. Mm-hmm. Me too. And Christy, these rules were established in 1930. The Death of Roger Ackroyd was published in 1926. And I've seen reference to the Detection Club considering expelling her because she broke some of the rules um, in in that book. But Martin Edwards, in one of the things that he's written about the Detection Club, talks about how that is completely fiction. Her book was published several years before the rules were established. It's kind of like what you were saying earlier, Manon, about the supernatural, right? You think about how many books were written now with uh, an unreliable narrator as the device in the book. And it just really speaks to how the genre has evolved over time. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is great about these these rules that they can be more guidelines and you can get rid of as many as you need to and still have, you know, a viable story and an entertaining story. But if you're trying to write a true detective story, I think these, you should probably follow follow these a little bit more closely, but if you want to get a little bit experimental, I don't see an issue with that because obviously the murder of Roger Ackroyd has become, one of her most famous and beloved works. So it's kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, worth taking that shot of breaking that rule, even if they hadn't, these rules hadn't been invented at the time she wrote it. I think it makes for, I think it can make for very interesting and effective work of mystery. 
It reminds me a lot about just in um, English class in general, where, you know, they really want you to follow all the rules of um, grammar rules, for instance, or um, actual writing rules. But once you know the rules, then you can kind of play with them and break Mm -hmm. them, you know, maybe even with punctuation or with grammar things or things, because then you're doing it on purpose. And definitely these detective uh, fiction authors were playing with them and doing things on purpose and um, creating just really unique stories that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point, Brooke. I think you need to understand the rules before you can break them. Yes. So Manon, I was speaking with a bookseller who told me that Golden Age Mysteries have uh, sold particularly well since the pandemic. Have you seen any of that in your experience, either as a reader or in your work in the publishing industry? Well, just from a book industry perspective, book sales have really skyrocketed since the pandemic. I think that's a very easy statement to make, just saying people are home all the time now or more so. And it's very natural that a lot more readers will pop up and start buying books, which is great for the industry. In terms of Golden Age Mysteries selling better, I'm not super sure about uh, about that, but I do love to hear that because, you know, I know personally I've been trying to get into them more because I think they're just a great, they're so much fun and usually they're very you know, easy to read, I think, and very entertaining. I I hope that they get more and more popular because there's so many authors um, that I think deserve a little bit more of that popularity. I mean, obviously, Agatha Christie is fantastic and um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as well, but I think there are probably other authors that deserve that same level of or a similar level of fame. And I hope that people are mm-hmm. going to be discovering them more. I know after doing all this work, work looking up the detection club, I know that there's quite a few works that I would like to, to read now. And uh, I've never read any Dorothy L. Sayers at all. And I really want to get into that because I think once you learn a little bit about how seriously a lot of these authors were taking the craft even if it's kind of tongue in cheek, they're still, you know, discussing their mystery writing mm-hmm. with these other authors. And that kind of makes you want to understand what they're writing and, uh, you know, read a little bit more into it. I read the first part of Martin Edwards' book, The Golden Age of Murder. And in that, he explores the impact of the detection club on crime fiction. So he talks about what was going on in the world. Um, they had recently come mm-hmm. out of the First World War. Spanish flu was uh, fresh in people's minds. Uh, rising cost of living, word games, particularly mm-hmm. crosswords, were very popular. Uh, and there was just sort of this endless string of, of negative news. And I think it's really interesting that we find ourselves in a, in a similar climate. Uh, so we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, uh, word games like Wordle are popular. Um, rising inflation, and uh, and yeah, we've we've got an endless um, endless string of new- negative news. So I can I can see how people would be drawn into getting comfort from books and mm-hmm. comfort from mystery, uh, particularly the the ones that are from the golden age. Um, and you know, I think mystery just has continued to be a popular genre. Uh, so it's not surprising to me that there's been a resurgence in in interest in in 
um, books by these authors. Like you, I haven't read many works from members of the Detection Club, uh, but I was really surprised to learn that A.A. A. Milne was one of the first mm-hmm. members. Yeah. I, I did read that, actually. I read his mystery, The Red House Mystery. And uh, if you have an opportunity to read it, I highly recommend it. It's, you know, a murder mystery, a locked room murder mystery set in the English countryside. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of these, it has honestly looking at these Ten Commandments of detective fiction and knowing that Milne was in the club, I couldn't help but realize just how well he followed these. And um, it turned out to be a really surprisingly entertaining book. You know, there wasn't anything intensely shocking, but it was fun and funny. And um, that's like a little gem that had I not been aware that he had written that, I wouldn't have ever, you know, picked that up. So it's in the public domain. If you want to give it a read, you can get it on Project Gutenberg and uh, get the ebook for free. So definitely recommend that one. And and that makes me wonder how many other hidden gems are, you know, written, have been written by these authors. Like I, I know there's a lot more out there to, excuse mm-hmm. me, to read. So it makes me really excited to hopefully look up some of these people in their books. Yeah, that's such a nice thing that a lot of this work is in the public domain, making it really easy to track mm-hmm. down copies. What I found interesting exactly. about Milne's book is that he wrote it before the Winnie the Pooh stories were published. Uh, and it was actually his only mystery novel. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere that he wanted to write another uh, mystery, um, but was discouraged by his publisher of, of Winnie the Pooh because there was concern that it would draw away from from those children's books. So you wonder what what else he might have come up with had he taken that opportunity. And I love that he's in the detection club with just one book because a lot of these authors wrote a lot. They were really prolific, and I found it. I thought maybe he had written more because he's one of the more well-known authors on the list that I have. But just one book, as far as I know, and a good one, thankfully, but he's in the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that it's invitation only. What a wild invitation to receive. I don't know if you get a phone call or a letter, um, but what a moment to find out you, that you've been invited to join. I wonder if anyone has ever declined. I know. I feel like the, there's not a lot of centralized information about the Detection Club either. I don't know if they're intentionally trying to be mysterious, true to their name. But I almost wish there was like an, an official website or something to have you know, to, to learn more about the detection club because there's so much history. And I think there could be a lot of resources on the website about the club and what they're doing now and what they used to do and a bit of a lost opportunity in my opinion. But then again, they might just be intentionally trying to uh, remain mysterious, which is also kind of fun. I was struck by the way that, um, not so much now, but in the original club, how um, it provided a lot of the same interaction that 
we all can get now just at our fingertips with social media. You know, the, the three of us communicate on, could on a daily basis and kind of talk shop if we feel like it. Um, and I do so with a lot of different authors online, but the opportunity that um, they wanted to do that same thing. They wanted to spend time together and just be with other people who liked to talk about um, stories and mystery as much as they did. So I enjoyed that part about the original mm-hmm. club. I, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but I read somewhere that in the late 1920s, when Anthony Berkeley, who played, I think, the largest role in get, organizing the club and setting it up, he began hosting dinner parties. And I think it was Martin Edwards who alluded to this, that it was possibly to help cheer up Agatha Christie because she was going through a rough time with um, Mm. her husband, you know, cheating on her and um, having an affair. And so I think it was implied that she was a bit down in the dumps and Anthony Berkeley began hosting these dinner parties with fellow crime writers as a way to have that fun socialization. And then it turned into something a little bit more formal and yet still you know, really fun. I think, I mean, we could talk more about the, the initiation process Mm -hmm. and the oath and Eric, the skull that they brought out to, you know, for those ceremonies, an actual human skull, which I, I thought was illegal. I don't know if they still have it, but (laughs) you know, human (laughs) remains, it seems a little bit touchy, but they do. Yeah, I've heard that they still have Eric the Skull. However, maybe it's maybe it is a faux skull these days. I don't know. Yeah, you can tell that they were really having fun with themselves when they were establishing some of this ceremony. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a wonderful, you know, wonderfully macabre um, ceremony, and I think it's you know true to the true to form. There, a lot of these mystery novels by breaking down something that's so terrible and traumatic like a murder and making it into more of a fun puzzle to solve it they make it fun and entertaining and i love that the initiation process and the rules of the club play into that like whimsy and fun i think it speaks to the fact that it kind of takes a certain type of person um uh to get into this, you know, like I'm the person who I Mm -hmm. see a bag of trash by the side of the road. And I say to my husband, do you think that there's a dead body in there? And he's, you know, rolls his eyes and, and is a little like worried that about my sanity. Right. But these people were that way. They're like, we've got to have dinner together and talk this out because their spouses and their friends were probably, you know, rolling their eyes and worried about them in the same way. So it does, it takes like a certain brand of people to, um, to get it and to want to talk about these kind of puzzles and, um, solutions and mysteries all the time. So they found one another and, and I think they did have a lot of fun. You know, one of the things I read was that they, because they were doing these collaborative books together, which we can kind of talk more about, um, they were earning a substantial amount of money from these publications. And it said that they were able to rent rooms in Soho, uh, to hold their meetings in for a while. This was before, um, the world war, but, 
uh, and basically they would meet and sort of write and hang out and then also party and then go back to their rooms in Soho. So um, they had a lot of good times together, I think. I think they absolutely did. I would just love to be a fly on the wall in any of those meetings. Um, I think there's probably, I think they would have the most interesting conversations Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the publications. I know they did some round-robin novels. Um, The logistics of those must have been really interesting to work out. Uh, And then uh, some short story collections, and more recently, the book on craft uh, with 90 essays. I think it was one for each year of the club's existence. Uh, And I've read some of those, and they're they're quite good because they're written, obviously, by masters of the genre. Um, Have they recently Mm -hmm. done a round-robin? don't think so i was looking on amazon and i saw Mm. a few more recent ones but i'm not sure if they did one of those you can actually look up i think the detection club is treated as an author on amazon so you can click on the detection club and see all their books just in case anyone is interested in that i have not read any of the collaborative works so i would be interested have either of you read any of like the round robin stories no, I actually haven't read any of the Ron, Round Robin stories. Um, I did read Six Against the Yard, which is the short stories with uh, an analysis of each story by an investigator from Scotland Yard. Um, I thought it was a, a nice sample of works of those authors. I think it's really interesting that collaborative fiction, you know, it's something that continues to be really popular today, and I've seen it. I've seen a lot of authors participate in collaborative fiction and mystery, I think is one of the most popular genres to do that in. And what I find really interesting is the Agatha Christie company tends to do these collaborative fiction works or just collection works of um, short stories. And they just announced one recently called Marple, which have, which includes a bunch of different authors. Some of them really famous like Lucy Foley and Leigh Bardugo, who come together and they write these brand new stories with Marple as the character. And, you know, the Agatha Christie company really works overtime in making sure that her legacy stays alive. And I think this is a really interesting way to take these popular authors and a classic character and put them together in a work of collaborative fiction. And it reminded me a lot of what the Detection Club was known for doing. It's kind of what the Agatha Christie company is doing as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. And is that the collaboration that's set to come out at Christmas time? I think so. It's the one with like roses on the cover. I saw it on Instagram. So it made me think about um, your Christie for Christmas too. They're like continuing that marketing strategy as well. Yeah, they're really good with their marketing and making sure that there's new Agatha Christie content coming out, which I think is really exciting. Uh, Mana, did you have any other points or um, research or thoughts about the club that you wanted to share? I think we have our homework cut out for us to go and read some of these stories. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, I found for all of the episodes that we've done that there's just so much more that we could learn and and talk about. Um, So it may be that we revisit some of the Detection Club or some of these authors after we've had a chance to read a bit more of their work. Uh, and we can regroup and and talk about them a little bit more. That's a great idea. 
I think somebody should create a detection club book club where you just read some of these classic classic novels and short stories. There's so much to read. And like you said, a lot of them are in the public domain, so they're really accessible too, which is fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us, Manon. It was wonderful to have you join us and be part of this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite. You know, it was an opportunity to do a little research and learn about something fun and have a conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on Clued in Mystery. I'm Brooke. I'm Sarah. And we both love mystery. Clued in Mystery is produced by Brooke Peterson and Sarah M. Stephen. Music is by Shane Ivers at silvermansound.com. Visit us online at cluedinmystery.com or social media at cluedinmystery. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or telling your friends.